Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. A lot of dramatic developments on the provincial scene last week. Dr. David Williams, the province's medical officer of health, is leaving his post earlier than anticipated. What's the story there? Meanwhile, some encouraging news on the vaccine front. Everyone who wants one should have a second vaccine dose by the end of August. But lots of questions remain, including should the public school system welcome students back into the classroom anytime soon? The government got lots of advice on that last week. It's Tuesday, June 1st, 2021, so let's get to it. Well, once upon a time, Doug Ford said he wanted Dr. David Williams to remain at his post as Ontario's Medical Officer of Health for longer than his contract stipulated because, as the Premier said, you don't change dance partners in the middle of a dance, especially when they dance so well. Well, clearly, the Premier has had a change of heart because yesterday the government confirmed Williams will leave his post earlier than his original September 1st departure date. JMM, what happened here? Well, the news here is that uh, Ontario is getting a new chief medical officer. Uh, Dr. Kieran Moore is currently the local uh, public health officer for the Kingston region, uh, and he's been extremely well regarded uh, by uh, more or less everybody I've spoken to uh, in the last year. Uh, he has also uh, spoken with us at TVO a few times. We've got some pieces on the website if anybody wants to uh, read those. Uh, and Kingston has really had one of the uh, best records uh, for performance during this pandemic uh, in terms of Ontario regions. Uh, they have had uh, far fewer cases of COVID-19 than either the sort of um, provincial per capita average and, and certainly far less than big cities like uh, Toronto or Peel region. Uh, but, you know, as you noted, the timing here is a bit odd. Uh, you know, we got a, a full-on motion of the legislature to permit uh, Dr. Williams to continue to serve as a medical officer of health until uh, September 1st, and he now will not do that. Uh, Dr. Moore is going to take over uh, later this month. And you know, it's a, it is a natural question uh, to ask uh, what is happening here. Um, the most boring explanation might just be that this is a, a trick of the calendar. Um, Dr. Williams's term was going to end on September 1st, and MPPs don't actually uh, return to the legislature until uh, September 13th or 14th. And if you wanted to have a replacement in place, uh, you needed a vote of MPPs. So this week is happens to be the, the last sitting week of the legislature is sort of their um, easiest opportunity to get a replacement lined up. That is a very non-controversial explanation for what's <laughs> yes. transpired. And I suspect, well, you know, there might be a grain of truth in that. I'm, I'm not necessarily buying that one. And I'll tell you, I read the press release that the Premier's office put out. I read it pretty carefully. And while it is filled with plaudits for Dr. Williams's performance on the job over the last, whatever it is, 16, 17 months that we've been dealing with this uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, there was actually nothing in the release that explained why he was leaving early. Now, we've heard, one of the rumors anyway, is that there was a disagreement between him and Premier Ford on the issue of reopening the schools. Anybody, anyone been able to nail that down? 
Uh, no, as far as I have seen, uh, at least as we're recording this, nobody has, uh, certainly like none of the papers have gone to print on that that I've seen. Um, although it's been busy, I could have missed it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's certainly possible. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about the, uh, what, what the advice the premier has solicited on education in a minute, but, um, the, it, it's it's odd, right? This is why we're all scratching our head. Um, the premier has been so effusive in his praise for Dr. Williams uh, for so long uh, that it, it, it is weird to see him leave early. Uh, for the record, the Minister of Health was asked about this after question period on Monday, and uh, she said that uh, this is uh, entirely Dr. Williams' choosing, uh, that, you know, the, the timing worked for everybody. You know, I suppose that could be true. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's point out something that you and I both talked about in our newsletter, which people can subscribe to as well, the On Poly newsletter. The fact of the matter is, before this pandemic started, I bet you there might have been 12 people in the whole province of Ontario who could tell you who the medical officer of health for the province was. Um, now, I think darn near everybody knows that it was Dr. David Williams because he was on TV for the longest time pretty much every day. Uh, telling people what they needed to know about COVID-19. However, um, his performances were not without controversy. And perhaps just before we leave this subject, uh, and before we talk about reopening schools and whether they will or not, can I get a final comment from you on um, what's the verdict on Dr. Williams? I mean, on the one hand, 34 public health units that he had to be responsible for, advice that was, you know, never more serious that he had to give the premier on uh, what he ought to do as it relates to this coronavirus. On the other hand, his share of criticism along the way. Oh, boy. Um, in terms of his own communications style, um, I don't want to be mean to the guy as he's heading out the door, but I, I, I think it would be fair to say that... Um, Dr. Moore from Kingston is uh, widely seen as a, a very uh, clear and effective communicator, uh, and I, I think that will be a um, substantial improvement uh, relative to Dr. Williams, who was uh, not always very clear and um, just didn't always speak uh, clearly about matters where clarity is really important. Um, on the other parts of the job, uh, you know, the more substantive, if you want to call it, uh, uh, performance issues. You know, one of the big questions that I think uh, historians are going to be asking, and frankly, I'm already thinking about myself, is, you know, how much did the medical officer of health matter? Uh, rather, how, how much did the chief medical officer of health matter? Uh, you know, every decision that Dr. Williams made or could have wanted to make had to get filtered through the PC cabinet and uh, the PC caucus. Um, you know, I don't know how effective uh, a chief medical officer could be uh, given those constraints, and we don't have a time machine to play it all over again. <laughs> yeah, well, when you and I are doing this podcast in 20 years, let's revisit this subject and we'll figure out <laughs> what historians had to say about it. Episode 10,000 of the Unpolly <laughs> podcast. <laughs> there you go. Well, let's move on and talk education. And I won't say this is unprecedented, what we're about to talk about, because Despite what you think, JMM, I actually did not cover the Ontario legislature back in 1867. But let's say, <laughs> let's just put it this way. I cannot recall any premier asking so many experts for such crucial advice in such a short space of time ever. 
So let's go through this. Last Thursday, Premier Ford asked nearly 50 stakeholders in healthcare and education for their advice on whether to reopen Ontario schools, and he gave them one day to respond. One day. Okay, tell us the story. What was that all about? The Premier's office released this um, very, I mean, you know, for a modern political letter, it's a, it's a, a lengthy and it's a, a, you know, a footnoted document uh, that actually, you know, at least as of Friday, it, it, or rather Thursday, I should say, it contained, you know, a lot of very current information about what's going on with COVID and uh, raised a lot of questions uh, in particular about the newest variant of concern that is circulating in Ontario. This is the uh, B1617 variant uh, first identified in India. And, you know, ultimately, to boil it all down, uh, the letter comes down to two questions, right? Is reopening schools for in-person learning safe for students? And uh, is the reopening of schools safe for teachers and education staff? Uh, two big questions that, uh, at least as you and I record this, uh, the Premier has, neither the Premier nor anybody else in Cabinet has sort of tipped their hands as to um, what they are leaning towards yet. And almost 50 stakeholders in health and education, as we say, got this letter asking for advice. Uh, give us an example of the kinds of people who the Premier heard from. I mean, the letter is almost, you know, more uh, more of its length is devoted to the, the, the list of stakeholders than the actual content of the letter. Uh, three of the five pages have stakeholders listed on them, uh, and it includes, uh, you know, hospital leaders, pediatric specialists, uh, all of the province's uh, 34 local medical officers of health, uh, including one presumes Mr. Moore, uh, and uh, also the big education unions. So, you know, it's, uh, the Premier has cast a very, very wide net in terms of the feedback on this really, you know, crucial education question uh, that he's trying to answer. And what has been the feedback to this very unusual ask? <laughs> Well, you know, it's been mixed, I think <laughs> would be fair to say. Uh, some medical officers of health around the province, uh, particularly in areas where there's relatively low uh, prevalence of COVID right now, uh, are saying, yeah, they're ready to open. Um, Dr. Williams was asked about this last week, and he says that the uh, only medical officer of health who has clearly said no, or at least had said that uh, last week, uh, was in the Porcupine Public Health Unit. This is where uh, the, the, the unit that includes Timmins, and they're having a really severe outbreak there right now. Um, and you have somebody like uh, Dr. Eileen Devilla in Toronto, uh, the medical officer of health there, uh, who has I would say, uh, <laughs> issued a very cautious uh, endorsement of the idea of reopening schools. Um, so very, very mixed. And uh, more than anything, I think a lot of people sort of were, sh you know, scratching their heads saying, you know, why did you wait so long to ask for this advice? You know, the letter came out on the Thursday. People were asked to give their feedback by Friday, the last Friday in May. And that's not exactly an opportune time to make a decision about whether schools should reopen, given that we're talking about just a few weeks of instructional time. Well, let's acknowledge that it's hard to think of too many instances where it's a bad idea to ask experts for advice. But let's also acknowledge that if this government has been susceptible to criticism, it's that they've been too late on too many things. So is it fair to point out that it's a bit late in the school year to be seeking this kind of widespread advice? Right. And uh, yes. And we see, you know, this is a bit of a pattern. Um, 
you know, they were late uh, getting a handle on long-term care homes, uh, arguably with how bad the second wave was in long-term care. You could say they almost never did until vaccines got around. Uh, they were late to shut down various aspects of the economy, uh, In certainly in the third wave. Uh, they were late to reopen outdoor activities, even though they were uh, given clear advice from uh, the science table and others that it was uh, not just safe to have people outside, but preferable to have them outside. Uh, and now, you know, yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, as our listeners listen to this, it's June 1st, and we still don't know what the uh, plan to reopen schools is. So, you know, TikTok, there's, there's what, 15, 20 days of school left? <laughs> not too much, right. So has the government given any indication on when they will decide about whether schools reopen now that they've got all this fresh advice on their hands? Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, as of Monday, uh, the Premier had told uh, City TV's Jamie Tumulty that a decision was coming in a day or two. Uh, the Minister of Health said much the same thing after question period on Monday. And honestly, you know, that seems to me like the decision is almost certainly no, uh, at least in uh, the GTA. Uh, schools probably won't reopen or they'll only reopen uh, in parts of the province where there's effectively no COVID at the moment. And and we haven't really gone over the, the COVID numbers in a while, but, you know, there are regions in the province right now that are having like one or two cases a day. It's, it's very manageable in those areas. Um, the other thing that it's, it's hard to express this in a way, but reading that letter, um, it, it read to me very much as a letter that was laying out all the reasons why the government did not want to reopen schools and was asking to be convinced to change their mind, right? Um, it, it did not read like a letter uh, from a government that was um, uh, undecided, right? It, was, it, it read like a letter that's what we've already decided we're not going to reopen the schools, but... Uh, you know, we're going to ask for one more round of input before we make it final. Well, one of the things that surprised me, and we should say that, that um, you know, not all of the letters and not all of the advice that these organizations gave to the government were made public. Some of them were. I know some of the teacher unions, for example, made their advice public. And I can't say that I was blown away with how forceful the advice was. You know, the, the letters said things like, if you want to reopen the schools, and if it's going to be your decision to do that, <laughs> then make sure you take into account, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da, teachers get vaccinated, students get vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I must say, teacher, you know, teacher unions are, are rarely shy about offering their <laughs> advice on what they think is best for the education system. But I thought the letters that I read anyway, they very much punted their advice and 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 wrote a letter that looked like they were just sort of covering their backsides. I don't know. You, am I too harsh on that? No, and I, I think there was a lot of that. Uh, you know, I already mentioned uh, Dr. Davila in Toronto, and I, I thought that uh, her uh, submission to the province uh, was very much in the same uh, tone. Uh, you know, this is your decision. Don't try and make it my decision. I don't want it to be my decision. But if you decide to reopen the schools, here's what I think, X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, I think there's not a ton of profiles and courage going around on this issue right at the moment. I think um, more or less everybody is sort of, um, well, even, you know, I think we mentioned this before, but, you know, the, the premier's uh, 
request for consensus from scientific advisors uh, on this issue is sort of like an excuse to do nothing because you're never going to get consensus. So is it all just a bit of a show to <laughs> to, to run out the clock? I don't know. It, it, <laughs> it's Tuesday, June 1st. It looks like that to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good reminder that at the end of the day, one guy is the decider. And we'll actually have more on that in our quotes of the week. Now, let's talk vaccine rollout. We did hear from the premier that everyone who wants one should have a second dose by the end of August. The province also rolled out some new slide decks at a briefing last week explaining how the process will go. It was essentially a timetable on when people can get their first and second doses, which of course is important because the province can't begin its three-stage reopening procedures until certain vaccination benchmarks are met. So what did we learn from that briefing? Basically, the process for getting your second shot of uh, whichever vaccine you received uh, is going to be much like the first, uh, except that we're going to move through the um, the age ladder, so to speak, much faster because the volumes of vaccine that we're getting are so much larger these days. Uh, so uh, people in Ontario who are 80 or over uh, are already eligible to get their second shots uh, as this podcast is in your ears. <laughs> and uh, people 70 plus will be eligible starting two weeks from now. Uh, the government government did uh, release a schedule for uh, younger age groups, but uh, I would basically advise our listeners not to take uh, take it all, all too seriously once you get past the next two weeks, because uh, the government also isn't counting uh, millions of doses that we know are very likely coming, but we just don't have specific set dates for yet. Uh, as those doses are incorporated into the planning, a lot of the younger age groups are going to get uh, moved up. They are going to get accelerated. So, you know, for people who are, you know, 60 and under, <laughs> I, I don't think it's worth at the moment uh, getting attached to specific dates in the calendar. Well, I must say, Mr. McGrath, you have a, a really delightful habit of asking a really good question at a really good moment in the briefings that have taken place. And we know about the first one that went viral uh, <laughs> when you asked Staney Brown that key question, <laughs> you know, this sure looks like a disaster pending to me, does it to you? And he agreed. You asked another really good question in the briefing last week, and that is that some people are still looking to get their first doses, while at the same time, others are looking for their second doses. So let me ask you whether you got a reasonable answer to that question of whether there will be competition for doses, given that there is, I mean, there's good supply, but it's a finite supply and presumably much greater demand for that finite supply. What'd you find out? Uh, so just for our uh, our listeners' benefit, uh, you won't be hearing a, a viral clip of that question because this was a technical briefing uh, with government officials and the rules of these briefings are that we're not allowed to quote them directly or name them. Uh, that has been the rule through the pandemic and before. Uh, but the answer I got to that question was effectively that there are so many appointments uh, already booked for younger people uh, getting their first shots. And, that, and you know, this was being described to us last week, um, there are so many people who are either booked for appointments uh, for doses that are already on hand or very nearly on hand that people who start booking their second shots uh, this month are not really competing for those doses. They are getting more recent arrivals. You know, I guess, you know, it was it was an answer. It was a good faith answer to the question. Um, but I, I will say I'm not fully convinced. You know, there's still a 
a ton of people in Ontario, 12 or older, who have not yet gotten their first shot. Uh, millions of people, literally. Uh, and I have to believe we're going to see some kind of friction there between uh, allocating doses in terms of who gets their first shot versus who gets their second. And if we don't see that friction, that could also be uh, a bad news story. Uh, I'm not prejudging it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not jumping to the most pessimistic outcome here. Uh, but, you know, if uh, if there isn't that competition, it might end up be, being because we don't see as much demand for first shots, right? We've had really, really good uh, take up in the vaccine, you know, lots of people crowing about how Canada is exceeding other countries now in terms of people getting their first shots. Uh, but that could level off uh, and it could level off at 65%, 70%, 75%. And if it levels off too soon, uh, the good news will be that more second shots will be available to people faster, uh, but it could also spell uh, a long-term problem for the province. I wonder if I could just maybe take a moment here to share my own experience, because I was in one of those demographics that was eligible for a second shot now. And I called my local pharmacy where I got my first shot. I called the pharmacy three times, actually. And every time my question was, can I please make an appointment to get my second shot? Now the province has said, I'm eligible. Can I do that? And every time the answer from the pharmacist was, we'll call you when we get supply. And of course, <laughs> I wasn't completely convinced of this. And, uh, you know, supply can sometimes come in and you don't get the call for whatever reason. So I wanted to make sure I was kind of on the list. But Friday night, I got an email saying, we have got our supply. Do you want to come in tomorrow and get jabbed? I don't think they said jabbed. That's my word. <laughs> and then it offered many different times during the following day to get my vaccination. And I very easily and quickly picked a time. I got a confirmation email. I went in the next day. I got the jab. I had no adverse effects at all. And it all worked actually perfectly. So I wanted to put that on the record because, of course, there's been plenty of criticism about the administration of the vaccine rollout. So the question is, the way it worked for me, is that how it's going to work for all other demographics as well? It might. Uh, you lucky people who got a shot of AstraZeneca uh, before March 19th uh, are eligible to get a second shot on an accelerated window, uh, just uh, 10 weeks between shots. Uh, people who got their first shot after March 19th are going to stick to the 12-week uh, interval between doses that was the original sort of manufacturer's recommendation. Uh, that's specifically for AstraZeneca, though. And uh, part of what's going on there is that the government is using up some of the oldest doses of AstraZeneca before they expire. Um, this is, a, everybody I've spoken to says this is extremely safe and people shouldn't worry about it. It's just a matter of, you know, making sure that none of these doses go to waste. Um, for people who got Pfizer or Moderna, they are going to be able to book their second shots either through the provincial website uh, or they can try contacting the place where they got their first shot. Uh, some people have gotten their first shots of Pfizer or Moderna at, at pharmacies. Uh, they might go back to those pharmacies. Um, in my case, I got uh, my Pfizer shot uh, through a pop-up clinic that was being administered by the Michael Guerin Hospital uh, in East Toronto. And so, you know, I gave them my email when I got my shot. I am waiting for an email to tell me when I am eligible. Um, Good luck. Hope you get <laughs> it soon. <laughs> May the odds be ever in our favor, right? <laughs> 
Amen. All right, let's talk some numbers here. We have often talked on this podcast about the work of the Financial Accountability Office. That's the neutral, nonpartisan group of number crunchers who they don't report to the government. They report rather to the legislature as a whole. And they have a new report out on long-term care spending. Came out last week. What did that report have to say? The headline figure from uh, that report was an estimate from the FAO that the government is going to need to hire over 37,000 nurses and personal support workers by 2024 uh, to make good on the promises it has made about uh, shrinking the wait list for long-term care beds and increasing the level of care that people in long-term care receive. Uh, obviously, you know the premier has made two uh, very big commitments. Uh, you know, shrinking the the long-term care wait list actually preceded the pandemic. Uh, but then since the pandemic has started, uh, the premier has also committed to substantially increase the amount of care that uh, long-term care residents get. Both of those come with uh, price tags and both of those come with uh, increased labor that is required uh, for the province to pay for. Uh, it's a pretty big number and, you know, it's 2021, uh, three years away is 2024, and the government doesn't have a, a ton of time uh, to meet that benchmark. Right. I mean, they've got to find a way to make uh, 12,000, more than 12,000 people, uh, nurses and PSWs per year over the next three years. Uh, not impossible to do, but uh, requires a, you know, a good sized investment. And I know that the, uh, the government has said that they want to help subsidize the education of those who want to go into this line of work. Uh, the issue is, given how hard this work is now, uh, will there be enough people out there to fill those spaces, I guess, to be continued? Um, the folks at the FAO are evidently quite busy because they also put out another report just yesterday on spending by the Ministry of Education. And what did we learn from that report? Yeah, it, maybe a bit of context here just to say to our listeners that uh, the FAO is, is putting out a lot of these uh, reports right now to help support the work of the um, Committee on Estimates. Uh, this is the committee at uh, Queen's Park that scrutinizes all of the government's requests for uh, money, basically. And the, uh, the, the long-term care report and now this education report uh, are both there to basically give MPPs uh, useful information to help as they scrutinize uh, the government's books. And so in this uh, education report, uh, this was interesting because they basically concluded that uh, over the next several years, the, uh, the the spending in the education ministry is going to grow by about 2% a year. That's from 2019 to 2029-2030. Um, but the government's actual budget plan for the the future uh, actually only calls for education spending to increase by an average of 1.2%. So there's a gap there between what the government says it's going to spend and what the FAO is projecting is actually going to be necessary to spend. Uh, so you get a gap of about $2.9 billion by 2029-2030. Uh, overall, the the cumulative uh, spending gap uh, from 2021 uh, to a decade ahead is about 12.3 billion. So you know, pretty substantial sums of money, uh, you know, in question here. And uh, the FAO concludes that uh, the you know. It's effectively it's a deficit. So the government is either going to need to increase the funding to the education minister ministry, uh, or it's going to need to introduce new spending restraints. And um, 
you know, there's an interesting little detail here, uh, a, a kind of nerdy little morsel that our listeners have come to expect. Oh, well, hang on. Now, as usual, this shocks me, just shocks me <laughs> that you have found a nerdy little morsel to chew on. So go ahead, my liege, have at it. <laughs> So currently, uh, compensation for public sector employees, including teachers and other education workers, uh, is constrained by a law that the Tories passed in 2019, which uh, limits increases in total compensation to 1% per year. Uh, the current contracts with teachers expire in 2022, and the FAO's report assumes that their next contract will not be limited by the current law, and that it compensation will start growing by about 2% a year. And they're making that assumption because that's the sort of historical rate that compensation increased. Uh, but they did acknowledge that if the Tories choose to extend the current uh, limits on compensation increases, that would shrink uh, a lot of the gap that they are projecting going forward. So can we infer from that that the government almost certainly will, in fact, extend those current pay limits? Well, um, Technically speaking, it might not be up to them because these contracts expire uh, in August of 2022, uh, which is after the next election. Ah, so it could be their problem, could be somebody else's problem. And speaking of which, the podcast is dropping, as the kids like to say, this one here that we're talking on right now. It's dropping June 1st. So you know what tomorrow is, right? Uh, it's too early for Bastille Day. Uh, you you got to give me a hint. <laughs> <laughs> well, tomorrow is June 2nd, and that means it, exa it is exactly one year until E-Day, Election Day, June 2nd, 2022. So in the run-up to every election, uh, people, of course, who are interested in running for office will fight for party nominations so that they get to carry either the Conservative or the NDP or the Liberal or the Green Banner into the next election. And for several weeks now, candidates have actually been running for and winning those nominations. There's actually lots of current MPPs who have got their nominations and are ready to go for next time. Well, something very unusual happened last week in the Northern Ontario riding of Thunder Bay at Atacokan. A woman named Maureen Kamuzi, who had the PC nomination in that riding, Thunder Bay at Atacokan, she stepped down from her nomination. That's unusual. What's the story there? It is unusual, and it seems to stem from uh, an, uh, an issue in uh, northern Ontario, unsurprisingly, for the, the riding. Uh, the government has introduced a bill uh, that will effectively uh, sever the Northern Ontario School of Medicine from uh, Lakehead University. Uh, the School of Medicine had been, I guess you'd call it a sort of a, a joint project between Lakehead University and uh, Laurentian, and this will uh, effectively set it up as its own university. Uh, the government has its reasons for doing this, but in the North, this is seen as something that could... Uh, imperil the long-term future of Lakehead University in Thunder Bay. Uh, so obviously, as a, a representative of that community, uh, Ms. Kamuzi is uh, worried about what the government is potentially doing to, to harm, you know, what's a, a major employer in, in that city. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of candidates, of course, have to fight against other candidates to win the nomination. That was not the case here. Uh, Kamuzi was acclaimed to her nomination. I suspect in part because the name Kamuzi uh, carries a great deal of weight in Thunder Bay. Her uncle Joe Camusi was a conservative MP in Thunder Bay for 20 years. Do we have some understanding of what kind of impact this might have for the PC party, not just in Thunder Bay, but across northwestern Ontario? 
Uh, in the writing of Thunder Bay Atacokan, uh, meaning no disrespect to Ms. Kamuzi, but this has probably not cost the conservatives a seat that they were very likely to win. Uh, the seat was liberal held from its creation in 1999 to 2018 when Bill Morrow very narrowly lost to the NDP challenger uh, Judith uh, Monteith Farrell, who now sits at Queen's Park. Uh, since 1999, the PC candidate has never done better than 23% of the vote in that riding. That said, I do think there's a lot of anger about some recent actions the provincial government has taken uh, in the North. Uh, we've talked about the Northern School of Medicine. Uh, there's the broader story about, um, I guess the, you could say, the fallout from what's happened at Laurentian University. Um, and, you know, the government has some high-profile MPPs in the North who are at least theoretically vulnerable. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of people like Greg Rickford and Ross Romano, uh, both uh, hold seats in the North. And, you know, it's it's at least conceivable that they could be defeated next year. Well, they were both the first conservatives in generations to have won those seats for the Tories. So, yes. yeah, that's those are certainly seats to keep an eye on. Now, let's stay up north while we're here. The provincial government also announced last week that it would begin the process of resurrecting the Northlander. Now, I know some people listening to us right now will know what that is, but some won't. <laughs> so why don't you give us the 411 on that? I feel like we probably have some rail fans in our listeners, but here, here. Uh, this was the train that used to run from Toronto all the way north to Cochrane, Ontario, where it connected with the Polar Bear Express. That's the train that connects basically the rest of Ontario uh, all the way up to Moosonee up uh, on the shore of James Bay. Uh, the Liberal government cancelled the Northlander back in 2012, but kept the Polar Bear Express because it's the only year-round connection for people in that part of Ontario. So what specifically was the announcement they made last week? Uh, the Minister of Transportation, that's uh, Carolyn Mulroney, committed last week that the government is going to restore at least some version of a rail connection between uh, Toronto and uh, northeastern Ontario. Uh, they haven't quite settled on whether the train will go all the way to Cochrane again, like the Northlander did, or whether it will go to Timmins instead. And that is a bit of a tough call for them to make, though, right? Because... Whether this train goes to Cochrane or Timmins, there are pros and cons in each case and obviously big financial implications in each case. You want to briefly take us through some of that? Sure. Uh, the short version is that if the train connects to Timmins instead of Cochrane, it might be less expensive over the long term. Uh, Timmins is just a larger city and... More people will hopefully take the train. You know, in general, if you are connecting bigger cities to to the train rather than smaller cities, you'll get more passengers. Um, but if they restore the rail link to Cochrane, then it's going to be easier for people in uh, points farther north to connect to the train and uh, head further south. If they don't run the train to Cochrane, people who are getting off of the southbound train uh, in Cochrane are going to have to take the bus to Timmins, and that's not like the most arduous journey. It's like an hour by bus, I think, uh, but it would be uh, an additional hurdle for passengers. Okay. With all of this background in place, we now ask the tougher question. Do we really think any of this is ever going to happen? <laughs> now, I don't want to sound like a cynic here, but making this announcement a year before an election could be misinterpreted for pandering for northern votes, right? <gasps> I mean, fun, fun. I know I hear the, I hear the outrage in your voice. You can't imagine that's possible. <laughs> But, it, you know, it is, not, um, it is not an untested technique for governments to fund studies, but then when the time comes to actually spend the big money to build whatever it is you've studied, well, sorry, we just don't have the money for that. So what are the chances of this thing actually happening? 
better than zero, I would say. <laughs> um, you know, certainly you and I can point to uh, several previous examples of extravagant promises that were made in the run-up to an election that never materialized. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I can think of uh, the 2014 election where the Liberal Party under Kathleen Wynne uh, promised high-speed rail between London and Toronto and wouldn't you know it, they were still promising the same thing four years later because nothing had been built. Um, I will note, however, that one thing this project has going for uh, it is that in any plan, the train would necessarily stop in North Bay. And you do remember who the MPP for North Bay is, right? North Bay, if I recall, is in the riding of Nipissing, which means Vic Fideli is the MPP there. Yes. <laughs> Vic Fideli is a uh, serious and significant senior cabinet minister in this government. But, um, I mean, let's look at the facts here. The liberals canceled this thing in the first place because they felt it was not financially sustainable. So did it suddenly become more financially sustainable a decade after they canceled it? Uh, no, it did not. Uh, the report that the government issued last week, this is a, what's called an initial business case where they try to spell out the the pluses and minuses of a, a proposal like this. Uh, and they are unambiguous that uh, this is not a... Uh, a project that can pay for itself. This is uh, a project that is going to uh, cost money to get started, and it's going to continue costing money. It's going to need very large subsidies uh, over the long term, basically no matter what. That choice between Timmins and Cochrane is the choice of whether you are subsidizing each passenger on that train by like $200 a passenger versus $300 a passenger. Over the long term, that adds up and it's something for the government to keep in mind. Uh, but really, there's just there's no, um, there's no case to make here that this is uh, a project that is going to pay for itself, uh, more or less by any metric you use uh, as a per capita person or as a per person expense, it is going to be uh, much more steeply subsidized than, for example, transit projects around the GTA. That said, it's still not like that expensive relative to, you know, a billion dollars for uh, subways in or rather $10 billion for subways in Toronto, whether you're talking about the Scarborough subway or the Ontario line. Uh, restoring the Northlander is going to be at least much cheaper than that. And that's a point worth remembering. All you people from Toronto <laughs> or Ottawa, <laughs> Southern Ontario, all of you who think, what are we spending money in subsidizing all those lines in Northern Ontario for that so few people are going to use? Just remember, every time you ride the GO train, Ontario taxpayers are subsidizing your ride. Every time you ride the Toronto Transit Commission, a streetcar or a bus or a subway or the Hamilton Street Railway <laughs> or the uh, Rapid Transit in Ottawa, the LRT in Ottawa, provincial taxpayers are subsidizing your ride. Not that much. And not nearly enough for those for those local municipalities, uh, but it is happening. So that's something uh, I'm glad you pointed that out, JMM, because that is something we should keep in mind. Now, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think of our little venture happening here. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week, and we're going to go back to Friday's news conference. Last Friday, Premier Ford is asked by Toronto Star reporter Rob Ferguson about why still no decision on whether to reopen Ontario's schools. Uh, with what you're saying just now, are you afraid to make a decision of your own on reopening schools? No, I've never been afraid to make decisions. As a matter of fact, I've made some of the toughest decisions and probably not popular decisions, but we're there to protect the, the health of the people of Ontario and our decisions 
uh, as, you, as you've seen, with the advice of the health experts, have brought the cases uh, down lower. All I want, Rob, is uh, I know very clearly where Dr. Williams stands, but I want the scientists to weigh in. I want to make sure that the teachers' unions weigh in. I want the other educational uh, workers to weigh in. I, I just, you know, I don't want to rush this. That's Premier Doug Ford responding to the star's Rob Ferguson on school reopenings last Friday. My quote of the week comes from NDP MPP Saul Mamakwa, who addressed the legislature on Monday before question period and spoke about the horrifying discovery of 215 graves at a residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. Here's part of the speech he gave to the House. Speaker, all Indigenous peoples living today in Canada are survivors of Canada's tools of genocide. We are survivors of residential schools. We are survivors of Indian Act. We are survivors of the 60s coup and survivors on, on, of the uh, ongoing systemic racism which attempts to erase us. But we are still here. That was NDP MPP Salma Makwa from Monday. After he finished speaking, he asked for and received the unanimous consent of the House to observe a moment of silence in memory of the 215 children at the Kamloops Residential School who never returned home. You know, there's something about when Salma Makwa stands in the legislature to speak. I know there was a lot of noise outside because there was a big protest happening, but inside the legislature, you could hear a pin drop. When he stands to speak, people listen. I don't, you know, you could count on the fingers of one hand the number of people for whom that was the case in the history of Ontario politics. That is really something. There's a lot of respect shown to that man when he gets up on his feet. And an important speech. Amen. Well, that was episode 114 of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, editing from Donnie Swanson, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve.